We're back at it again this morning in our summer series. It's called Nope, That's Not in the Bible. We've, we've spent the last few uh, couple months now working through um, ideas, um, thoughts, bad advice that we've been given and that we have given in the past. Uh, basically, we're looking at things that sound like they contain some kind of spiritual wisdom, but really don't reflect biblical wisdom. And so we're, we're trying to help discern what is true and from the scriptures and what is, what is cultural and what can we, what can we leave uh, behind. This morning, we're going to be tackling a really familiar one, likely one, one that you've all heard before, don't judge me. Right? Now, typically, you hear something like this after, after you've had the audacity to actually suggest to someone that a decision that they've made, a belief they've held, or an action that they've committed is out of bounds. If, if you have the gall to stand up in someone's face and offer a competing viewpoint on their decision, their activity, their belief, you are typically seen as judging them. And in our hyper-tolerant, relativistic culture, is there anything worse that you can be than intolerant? Right? Is there, is there any, any more damning and, and condemning label to wear than you being intolerant. It, it seems like the most vile, the most heinous, self-righteous thing that you could possibly be would be to be considered intolerant or judgmental. And to stand up to someone and say that something they're doing is wrong almost guarantees that you'll instantly be reminded that you've crossed a substantial line. After all, who are you to judge me? Aren't Christians not, you're, you're told not to judge each other, right? Judge not, lest you be judged. This morning, we're going to look at that concept, that theme, that idea, and hopefully bring some biblical perspective to this whole thing. Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 1 through verse 6, is our main text this morning. We'll jump around a couple other places, but that's where we're going to be landing. Matthew 7, verses 1 through 6, Jesus is addressing his disciples, he says, look, judge not that you not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. All right. That could be a little confusing, right? So let's, let's talk this morning a little bit about what this really means. This is the first question we're going to ask. Is there really a nugget of truth in all of this? Judge not, lest you be judged. You're a Christian, you're not supposed to judge me. Is there a nugget of truth? Well, yes, of course there's a nugget of truth. I mean, it actually says, judge not, lest you be judged. It's like a direct quote. It's not just a nugget of truth. It, it, it comes straight from the Bible. So we have to wrestle with this and come to some understanding of how we're supposed to interpret this passage. I mean, Jesus makes it pretty clear. We should not judge. And if we do, we can expect the same measure of judgment to come back on us. 
Whatever measure you use, that's what he says. Whatever measure you use, whatever mode of judgment, whatever attitude of judgment, however you bring condemnation to another, be sure that that's going to come back on you. Jesus isn't just addressing uh, a group of people who are trying to be helpful to their brothers and sisters, their neighbors. He's addressing people whose self-righteousness has puffed them up in their own eyes to the point where they find themselves freely condemning other people while giving themselves a free pass. We're we're talking to self-righteous religious people, maybe not godly people, maybe not spirit-led people, but self-righteous religious people who are pronouncing condemnation and judgment on people who sin in different ways than they do. And he says, listen, if you're going to come with harsh judgment on somebody, you better be prepared because that same judgment will be visited on you. And whatever measure you choose to use judging other people, that measure will find its way back to you. And then he points out that absurdity of judging one another with that story of the speck and the log. And the truth is it's often easier for us to see the small and minute failures of others while missing entirely the biggest struggles in our own lives. When it comes to pointing out your sins, I have 20-20 vision. It is, I mean, I, I could write a list. I mean, let's go. We, we can, when we're, you're talking about your spouse, your children, your neighbor, your friends, your coworkers. You can write a list today of all the things they deal with, right? But let's not see your list. It's so easy to see other people's failures. So easy to look at other people and with a judgmental attitude, with a condemning heart, with a lack of compassion, a lack of understanding of humanity, look at them and demand perfection from them and point out all the ways that they fail you. So easy to do that. And Jesus says to these people, when you do that, what you're failing to take into account is the fact that you sin just like them. That you don't have it all together. That you are not the righteous judge. First, take the log out of your own eye before you worry about removing the speck from your brothers. Basically, you're not clean and innocent in all of this. So stop acting like you are. Now, please, he's not making a blanket statement to every Christian everywhere. He's talking about a specific group of people. The Sermon on the Mount was, was designed to show Jesus' disciples that the, the life in the kingdom was so much bigger than life under the law in Judaism. That the Jewish zealots, the religious hierarchy, were puffed up with pride and arrogance, and they were judging one another like this. And yet, what they were doing was not making converts, but Jesus said, twice the sons of hell that you are. Paul addresses this in Romans. You self-righteous people, you live by the law, you judge by the law. Are you unaware that you sin just the same way? That you're breaking all these same rules? He's talking to those people who would self-righteously judge others while not considering that they themselves are are sinful and need grace. So let's give some clarity here. What does all this really mean? What does all this really mean? 
There is a nugget of truth, but what am I supposed to do with that? Well, the problem for us and the reasons that we've, we've adopted, adopted this kind of urban legend here is one of confusion about what the word judge really means. For starters, you might not know that the word judge can be interpreted more than one way. There's, there's a couple different meanings. Now, it can be understood as to condemn or to avenge. And we know from the Bible's teaching that it is not our place to bring condemnation and vengeance. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. We know from scriptures that that those who fail and break the laws of God are not offending us. We are not holy and righteous. They're offending God who gave the law and his holy righteous character. That's not your fight to fight. So we recognize that vengeance belongs to him. That condemnation is his right and his prerogative alone. He has reminded us clearly that he's the only righteous judge. He's the only one capable of discerning motives and actions and pronouncing a foolproof verdict every time, which is why it's so dangerous for us. Because we don't really know what's going going on in the hearts of our brothers and sisters. But God does. We think we know, but we're flawed. We don't have the inside track on all the discerning, uh, you know, discerning all the issues of their hearts and in their minds. We can't judge all their motives. We don't have the ability. And to act like we do is to take the place of God. No, vengeance belongs to him. Condemnation is his. That's his prerogative. He's the only one qualified to make those kind of determinations. But that's not the only way we can understand that word judge. The word judge also means to analyze or to evaluate. And that type of evaluation is actually required of Christians. It's actually commanded of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 5, in response to immorality of a heinous kind in the Corinthian church, Paul requires the church to deliver the offender over to Satan. They had to come to an agreement that the judgment Paul rendered was a good one. That it was good to look at the life of a a professed believer and say, listen, what you're doing doesn't match up with what you're saying you believe. You're not showing evidence of a repentant, regenerate heart. We are going to follow the Lord's direction and hand you over for correction, for his restoration. They are actually required to do that. And that's a good thing. In 1 John 4, 1, John tells his, his disciples, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God. For many po- false prophets have gone out into the world. We are to analyze and evaluate the messages of false prophets and come to a conclusion, a judgment, so to speak, on whether or not they are preaching the same word of God that is preserved in the scriptures. Galatians chapter 6, right? The spiritual people are to restore those who are caught in trespass and sin. They're they're called to insert themselves into the fray. We've talked about that a lot. And bring loving correction. To say to a brother or sister, what you're doing doesn't match up with what you say you believe about Jesus. And something is out of whack here. Now, if by judge we mean I'm going to dole out judgment and condemnation on people, then no. It's not our job to render verdicts and apply punishment and bring condemnation. That, that's not what we do. Vengeance belongs to the Lord, not his servants like us. And if by judge we mean some puffed up and proud way where we, 
where we're distanced, we're separated from all the infractions. If by judge we mean I sit on my seat of purity and look at all your heinous sins and pronounce you guilty while, while avoiding the gaze of condemnation. Well, then, no, that's not what we mean either. But if by judge we mean observe and evaluate the life and conduct of a brother and sister in Christ and we offer loving and corrective wisdom, then by all means proceed. That's what God calls us to. We must do that. That's love. That's real love. If we believe about sin what the Bible teaches us, that sin is destructive and it's consequential, it has, it has ramifications down the line, there are prices to be paid in our lives when we walk out of wisdom and in foolishness. If we believe that, then it would be unloving for us to stand there and not speak. The loving thing is to warn our brothers and sisters to encourage them to walk with Jesus, to encourage them to repent of sin, to encourage them to find joy in walking in wisdom. That's love. That kind of analysis and evaluation, that kind of judging, if we will, is what God would have us to do. All right. Quick, quick review up to this point. Jesus says don't judge. Judge means both to condemn, which is clearly God's job, not ours, and to evaluate, clearly our job. So why the confusion about when and where to jump in? Why is there confusion? For the, for the sake of transparency, much of the remaining content here in this passage um, comes from a book I read by Larry Osborne called 10 Dumb Things That Smart Christians Believe, which is really funny, funny title. But he talks a lot about this there too, and it was very helpful for me. One of the reasons that there's a lot of confusion is that we view the world through the filter of tolerance. We've been so swept along by our culture, it's part of the reason we're doing this series this summer. That we, we find our, like the frog in the kettle just being boiled along. We find ourselves drawn along. We don't even realize we're going that way. And here we are, caught up in the middle of it all, and we've been so ingrained from the time we were young to, to now, especially those people in my generation, to, to embrace tolerance. It's a deeply embedded cultural value but it's been understood in, in a different way than in the past. It's been, it's been redefined. There, there's a new definition of tolerance that we're, we're embracing. And, and the new definition is more along the lines of we allow others to believe and live in ways that we don't agree with, and we support their right to do so, and we refuse to judge their viewpoint and actions as either being right or wrong. See, the, the new definition of tolerance means that we might not agree with you, but I'm not going to say anything about it. Which isn't really tolerance at all. That, that's, not, that's not how we've understood it up to this point. We're operating with this understanding that, that, that understand, under the surface, when someone speaks out against a belief, a lifestyle, a decision, it is literally seen as a culturally reprehensible act. It is being labeled as hate speech to say to somebody, I think something you're doing isn't right. That's not tolerance. That, that, that's the cultural definition of tolerance. That is not how tolerance has been understood up into this century, to the last 10 to 15 years. I wonder how many of us have been accused of that kind of intolerance simply because we have a disagreement with somebody. Now, sometimes we don't, we don't help it with our disposition, 
Some of you need to be, tone it down a little bit and you're disagreeing, right? Some of you are a little bit too aggressive. You're like bulldogs in a fight. You need to back it up a little bit. But, but just disagreeing with somebody has labeled us bigot, has been has used to label us as bigots or intolerant. Tolerance, friends, is not a bad value to embrace. It's not necessarily an unbiblical value to embrace. It simply needs to be understood according to its former definition. The acceptance of different views, but not, the, not, not a freedom from challenge. That's foolish. We, we grant others the freedom to believe what they want to believe, to choose to live in ways they, they choose, but they are not free from challenge. And in fact, God calls us to challenge those beliefs, those worldviews, those systems with the truth of the scriptures that pre- presents an altogether different way of life under a different set of rules, under a different king, under allegiance to a different kingdom. That cultural filter has crept into the church and that's, sometimes I think that's why we have a hard time with the judgment piece. We can see something someone's doing, we know we could say something, and we know we have a leg to stand on but we're afraid that we'll be labeled intolerant. Another reason that we have a difficult time with this is the idea of moral relativism, which is the, the philosophy, the belief that, that um, something a little deeper than just the tolerance, the belief that there is no universal spiritual truth, that there is no universal moral standard, that what's true for you is true for you, but not necessarily for me. And if you, if you pay attention to what's happening in pop culture I have seen the phrase, I have to believe my truth more often than I'd care to admit in the last few weeks. Celebrities and entertainers and people who make their living pretending, they they are people who now have influence and they say things like, I just have to be faithful to my truth. I have to believe my truth. And I just want to scream, what is your truth? You don't have the market on truth. God is true. God is right. God is just. He reveals truth. He defines truth by his very nature. Who are we who are we to examine and judge? No, this is true. Anyway, the moral relativism, in essence, what we're, what we're saying is two diametrically opposed positions can simultaneously be true at the same time. Now, we reject this outright because of our understanding of the Christian doctrine of revelation, that God has chosen to speak to us through his act of revealing himself. He has uncovered knowledge and insight and truth for his glory and for our good. He has dictated by his uncovering of knowledge what is true and what is false, and by his very nature and by his essence, he has defined for us what is true. Truth is not derived from the consent of the masses, but from the one whose very nature is true and right and just. That's where truth is found. So we reject moral relativism by the, by the doctrine of revelation that God speaks what is true. He reveals what is true. And if he says it's true, then it's true. If he says it's false, it's false. If he says it's right, it's right. If he says it's wrong, it's wrong. And we land there because we believe that he is a sovereign king, a creator of the universe, more glorious and powerful than anything we could ever imagine. And if he has spoken, he has the right to be unchallenged. Okay, so we reject it outright. Additionally, this idea of moral relativism doesn't seem to hold up to the tests. Just think about how silly some of this could be. If you play some of this out, for instance, in the world of engineering, suppose that that New York announced that they're going to tear down the twin bridges on 87 and they're going to replace them with newer bridges, something a little more aesthetically pleasing, right? And suppose they contracted a brand new RPI grad who's amazing and he's going to, 
He's going to design this bridge. And suppose that the unveiling of this concept, there's a big press conference and the governor is there taking credit for it like he do. And, uh, you know, and he looks at this thing and says, wow, this is so beautiful. Look at this gorgeous model, this concept. And they talk to the engineer and he says, listen, I love it. It's beautiful. I don't know if it's going to work or not. I couldn't get the math to line up right. You see, I wasn't really good in math. Actually, I failed every math class. But look, it looks gorgeous. And at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter if the laws of physics are in line because it's aesthetically pleasing and you'll smile as you drive across it. Nobody would sign off on that because it doesn't work that way. You, You can't just work your way around bedrock foundational principles and say, oh, just trust me because it works for me. Or suppose you go to the doctor and you're violently ill. You've got a nagging infection and he hands you a large bag of assorted pills. They look like Skittles, all different sizes and colors. And he says simply, listen, I'm so glad you're here. I'll gladly take your hundred bucks. I have no idea what's wrong with you. So here's a bag of pills. You know what? It doesn't really matter if we get the right diagnosis. Just take whichever one you like and whichever one you think is good, whichever one is your pill, you take that one and I'm sure it'll be fine. No, medicine doesn't work like that. Doctors find the appropriate infection. They treat it with a corresponding medicine. Sometimes we're just too shaped by our culture to call out the absurdity of the foundations that we're living on. It just doesn't hold up. Two diametrically opposed things cannot be simultaneously true at the same time. So, I think sometimes are the moral relativism, that's a cultural value. We have, to, we have to have God's spirit show us that we are drawn in there and, and we need his strength to kind of come out of that. We need his truth to come out of that. It's, it's important for us to be studying the Bible so we can see the, the perversions of truth all around us. But some of that might be why we have a difficult time. So, so here's the Christian's guide to judgment. Let's do it that way, Right? A Christian's guide to judging. Are you supposed to? Yes and no. So here, here, here's how it goes. When we judge, we should judge as we want to be judged. Isn't that what Jesus said? The measure you use will be visited back on you. So immediately I think of the parable of the unforgiving servant who after Jesus released him from a huge debt demanded full payment of a much smaller debt that was owed to him. The manner in which he judged was visited back on him as the master punished him and condemned him. The measure with which we judge others should be the measure with which we want to be judged. So that means that if you have a loved one, a brother or sister in the Lord, a friend who you need to speak up to, you need to say, listen, I'm watching your life and I love you and something is wrong. You are embracing a a position that is different. You're wandering from biblical truth. You're choosing to live a lifestyle that is separate and disconnected from the foundation that you have walked in in the past. And I love you and I just want to warn you. I want you to come back. When you come in that moment, you better not come with harshness and judgmental spirits and a self-righteous attitude. You come as a fellow traveler in need of mercy and grace. 
That's what he's saying. You do not have the right to sit on your white throne and pronounce judgment at your brothers and sisters as though you yourself don't have issues you're dealing with. You need to come with compassion and humility as one who knows the joy of finding grace in Jesus. You do it with a spirit of gentleness. Isn't that what Paul says in Galatians 6? The one who is spiritual restores the one who has fallen with a spirit of gentleness. Not a condemning, finger-wagging, but an embrace, a hug, a shoulder to cry on, and on our knees in prayer. We judge as we want to be judged. Beware of balancing the scales. Sometimes we yell loudest at the things we deal secretly with. As though God would see our passion for other people's violation and look past our own. Be careful there. Be careful of balancing the scales. Jesus encourages us to deal with our own stuff. As you're you're bringing that kind of, of judgment and clarity to a brother or sister in the Lord, be careful that you've, not all, that you've not forgotten to consider your own shortcomings. That is the warning in Matthew 7, by the way, about the plank and the speck. How can you possibly see clearly the shortcomings in my life when your life is such a wreck? Well, I'm surprised you can even see that. What all the mess you've got going on. But thank you for sharing. And since we're in this mood of, mode of sharing, let's, I've got a long list I'd like to share with you. you know? How can you see clearly He's not giving us freedom. Please hear me. He's not freeing us from the responsibility to care for a brother or sister and tell them. He's freeing us. He's demanding that we do it with a different attitude. So you might come to a brother or sister and say, listen, I'm not coming to you as one who is perfect or who has even mastered this. And I struggle with this, these issues as well. I am a fellow struggler. But what I see alarms me for you and I love you too much to sit quiet. You do not come with a, I've noticed that you're a mess. You're a sinful wretch. You need to knock it off and get your attitude right or God's going to kick you out. You don't come with that. There's no place for that kind of judgment. All right. Deal with your stuff. Here's one. Don't judge if God hasn't spoken clearly. We need, as this is hard, this is hard for people like me. I grew up in um, in an independent, fundamental Baptist culture. Right? And, and that simply means, for those of you who don't know, bless the Lord, you should just thank God. Um, but for those of you who do, what that simply means is we, we struggled sometimes with embracing not only the gospel, but a certain culture that came with it. And in our zeal for being obedient, we added layers to the gospel's demands on our lives that sometimes weren't the most biblical. So here's one, for instance, back in the day. They used to we just joked, Connie Reynolds, are you here? We just joked about this last night, about card playing. The reason Baptists don't dance is because it leads to card playing, right? We, you don't, you cannot bring those devil cards into my house and, well, where in the Bible are we told not to, to entertain a game like that? So we're, we're adding layers, right? Don't go to the movies. You cannot go to the movies because who knows what you'll see or what people might think you'll see and we have to, you know, avoid the appearance of evil. Well, okay, but I didn't see that actually in there, and you're judging me based on your opinion and the culture you've created, but not actually what the Bible says. And we need to be careful here. 
Because we have the tendency to judge people by our culture, not the scriptures. And if God hasn't spoken clearly, then we don't have the right to speak clearly. We need to understand the priesthood of the believer, which is a great Reformation principle we can get into some other time. But we need to understand that God has given us the right of self-determination in the scriptures. That the spirit moves in us and gives us freedom and liberty. And that means that some of our convictions are going to be different than the convictions of our brothers and sisters. Based on our unique history, on the victories that God has brought in our lives, on the culture that we've been part of, on our family of origin, on, based on how we're wired, our convictions might be different than somebody else's. We need to judge where the Bible speaks clearly. We need to consider the difference between Christians and non-Christians. I think this might be one of the most misunderstood parts of this whole thing. That when we attempt to judge the unbelieving world by believing standards, we miss the mark entirely. When we go to people who don't have the Spirit of God inside of them to empower their obedience and demand their obedience to the law, we are like the Pharisees, making them twice the sons of hell as us. They don't have the power within them of the Spirit to overcome the sins of the flesh. And when we demand that they walk in the light of truth, when they've not received the light of truth, we make a grave error. And we present Christianity as a set of rules. Be careful. Be careful. We cannot demand that the unbelieving world live with a believing standard. They're not ready for that yet. We can embrace them with love and show them the folly of their way of life as compared to the wisdom of walking with a God who loves them. Absolutely. But be cautious. When facing immorality in the church... That's where judgment begins. It begins at the house of God. We should prioritize the exercise of this gift, analyzing and evaluating. It should be prioritized within the Christian community. It should find its greatest expression there as we spur one another on to love and to good deeds, as we encourage each other to walk in faithfulness. Have you ever had a brother or sister who loved you enough to call you out and say, listen, I am so proud of what God has done in your life, but I think you have a blind spot that you haven't seen. And because I love you, I can't let this go anymore. I need to share this with you. Has any of you ever had a brother or sister love you enough to put their relationship on the line and your pleasure with them on the line to help you walk in faithfulness? I have. What a gift that is. What a gift. It should find its fullest expression here within the Christian community. Okay. Proper method. We judge our fellow Christians first, primarily. That's what Paul's talking about. We judge with grace. We don't judge with pride or self-righteousness. That's the log and the speck warning. We judge with grace. I'm not somebody who has it all figured out. I'm a fellow traveler. I'll, I'll gladly share with you the tips that I've learned along the way. I'll gladly share with you the strength that I've drawn from Jesus, absolutely. But I'm not perfect. And forgive me if I come across that way. We judge with the purpose of protection and restoration. In Galatians 6, again, Paul talks about we are supposed to restore gently. Why is it that we go after the wanderer? Why is it that we insert ourselves in the lives of those who are struggling? Why is it that we, we run that risk and, and take that chance and, and expose ourselves to be vulnerable like that in those moments? It's because we love them 
and we want them to be protected by God's grace. We want them to be uh, sustained in his grace. We want them to walk faithfully in wisdom and obedience because we believe that their ultimate joy will be found in submission to Jesus and not to the things of this world. So when we judge in this way, overload it with compassion and grace. Pray before you sit down with a brother or sister that there would be no ounce of a hint of arrogance or self-righteousness and pour on the love and grace in these moments. And judge with the scriptures. I think, I think this is probably the most powerful and beneficial piece of information you'll get all day. The real weight of the authority in our lives isn't my interpretation or my culture or my preference. The real weight of authority in my lives, in my life comes because God has spoken to me in his word. And when I sit down with a brother or sister in Christ, it's really helpful to sit down with somebody who shares an appreciation for the, the, the scriptures and say, God says right here this, I'm concerned in your life because of something I've seen. Can you help me understand how you understand that? How might it apply to you? Judge with the scriptures. Go there. Go back to the Bible. Show them the truth of God's word. All right, so what? What does all that mean for us today? I'm going to send you up. You're like new sheriffs in town. You can't wait to go home and start judging everybody, right? I, I have a, my courtroom will be open from three to five today. The children will each make their appeal before me and I will render my verdict. You might not see them for a while, right? So we're, no, 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 no. What, what does all this mean? Here, here's, here's what it means. One, Christians are called to abstain from judging and to engage in judging, and you need the Holy Spirit to discern. You are called not to judge, harshly and condemning way. You're, you're called not to, um, not to bring retribution and condemnation to somebody. That's not your role. That's God's role. You're called not to, but you're also called to engage in judging in that analyzing and evaluating way to help somebody see that the way they're walking is off the path of wisdom and into the path of folly. Secondly today, that judgment is focused primarily on Christians for the purpose of restoring them and protecting them. Like good parents, right? There's so many lessons that we could take to the... To the parenting realm here. One of the most foolish things that I can do as a parent, and I have done as a parent, is to look at my children and say, I just don't know why you... Yes, I do. Because they probably saw me. I, I just don't know why you... How could you talk back like that? Well, I'm a pretty mouthy guy. I make my living yelling at people. I mean, come on. I don't understand how you could be so deceptive. Well, I've, I've had my seasons as well. I don't understand how you, basically what you're saying is, I'm so far removed from sin, I can't even imagine how I could engage in that. Or what you're really saying is, my sin is so much different than yours, you don't know what it is and you can't see it. No, the judgment is focused for the purpose of restoration and protection. When parents come to children and, and correct them on the big stuff, our goal is not to rob them of joy and hurt them. Our goal is to protect them, to preserve them, and to ultimately set them on a trajectory for their greatest fulfillment and joy. 
And the same is true of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Right? And thirdly, judgment. That kind of judgment should be weighted, overloaded with grace and with humility. With grace and humility. Because let's remember that there's not one of us who is without sin. And if God has given you a brother or sister who's willing to have those conversations with you, then thank him for it. And submit to, submit to their, their insight as, insofar as it submits to God's. And if God has called you into that season where you have the, the burden of inserting yourself and helping someone, then be prayed up and go with grace, seeking for restoration, seeking for protection. I want to close with Paul's words to the Colossian church in chapter 3, verse 12 through 17. Here's what he says. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, Put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day, for your word, for the truth, for this amazing congregation we get to be part of. Thank you that you have given us clarity in the scriptures as to who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be like. Lord, I pray that you'd make us a congregation that we, like we just read about, clothed with compassion, humility, and kindness, willing to insert ourselves with a spirit of love, willing to do all things for your glory. God, I pray that you'd give us wisdom. Uh, Lord, we, we do not want to be seen as angry and judgmental people, but we feel a responsibility to stand in the gap and call sin, sin, to extol the virtues of, of wisdom from the scriptures, to, to proclaim truth in the marketplace, in the schoolyard, in our workplace. So God, help us to have the discerning a ministry of the Spirit, to know when to engage and when not to. Help us to have courage to explain and give a reason for the hope that is within us. Help us to do so with gentleness and respect. Lord, I pray that you would give us strength as a congregation to be more committed to personally discipling one another. Give us strength and the willingness to insert ourselves into the relationships around us to bring hope and joy and clarity and correction. Make us the kind of people that are willing to hear it as well without self-righteousness, without pride, without arrogance. God, and in so doing, I pray that you would move us more and more, conform us into the image of Jesus, that we would possess and demonstrate his character, his nature, his love, embracing his mission, that he would live his life through us, that we would reach the world. God, these are weighty matters. Thank you that you're already doing the work in our midst. Continue to pour out your blessings on us. In Jesus' name.